coming up on The Exam Room. You can have high-quality protein in a food (laughs) that isn't offering you quality in any way you care about. What constitutes quality when you think about food? Well, one thing might be the pleasure in eating it, but I think when we, we think about sustenance, we want food to nourish us in a way that feeds our vitality and our prospects for longevity, right? So if food is adding years to life and or life to years, okay, that, that sounds like quality to me. But the definitions of protein quality that prevail and that influence how everybody views protein are all about biochemistry. They're not about personal health. They're not about public health. And they're sure not about monetary health. So the view of protein that we're offering that's new says it's time to modernize how we even think about protein quality because there's a massive distortion there. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Salt Lake City, Utah, Akron, Ohio, and Milan, Italy, where it's fashionable to be plant-based. <laughs> Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 66 of season 6, number 462 overall. If you need something, but that something comes packaged with a whole bunch of other unhealthy things, things that are carcinogenic or could cause heart disease or diabetes, give you high cholesterol, high blood pressure, dementia, breast cancer, prostate cancer, kidney cancer, liver cancer, unrelenting inflammation and obesity, plus any number of other harmful diseases? Is it worth it to get that one thing from that source that comes with all of that baggage? Well, what if you could still get that one thing from a source that is clean energy and can reduce the risk of all of those diseases and is proven to be anti-inflammatory? It's as healthy as can be. You can get all of those health benefits and that one thing you were searching for in the first place as well. So which would you choose? The things that would keep you healthy or the things that would probably make you sick? Well, it doesn't seem like much of a choice at all, does it? For the purposes of our conversation today, that one thing is protein. And today we are going to take a new view on it with Dr. David Katz. He is reshaping our protein obsession with the latest research that shows that most of us are going about this whole protein thing all wrong. Certainly going to give us something to think about as we get into protein deficiency rates and essential amino acid sources and getting adequate amounts of protein from healthy sources. And of course, also the environmental impact of our source choices. Some major differences between animal and plant-based sources, as you well know. And what you may not know is that Dr. Katz will be a featured speaker at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine that kicks off August 10th in Washington, D.C. And I am so very glad that he is here with us today as well. 
And he's here with his new view on protein. Thanks for being here, Dr. Katz. Great to be with you, Chuck. Thank you. The new view of protein. How much has our view on protein shifted? What's new here, Doc? Well, a good place to start the conversation, Chuck, is, is why we need a view of protein, why we need a new view or any view, why, why there's cause for a panel discussion about protein. It's just a macronutrient. There are three of them. Everything we eat is basically made up of carbohydrate, fat, protein. Why does this need to be a big deal? So the historical context is really important here. We vilified dietary fat. This really was something of a distortion. It issued from the work of Ansel Keys, the seven country study, but it, it, there was a cultural overlay there because that early work, going back, by the way, to the late 1940s in its, in its early stage, was really to determine whether coronary artery disease was an inevitable consequence of aging or whether lifestyle factors influenced it. And the conclusion was the lifestyle factors diet in particular did influence it. We didn't all need to get coronary disease. And, and one of the important considerations was the dietary component of saturated fat. And uh, Keyes himself, by the way, who lived to 102, ate a relatively high-fat Mediterranean diet. But the advice to limit our intake of animal foods and thereby reduce our intake of saturated fat kind of got adulterated in pop culture into just cut all fat, uh, and we got things like snack roll cookies. So we cut fat and got fatter and sicker. So everybody then concluded, okay, we picked the wrong macronutrient. We should cut carbs instead. <laughs> um, and so you know we, we had the era of Atkins and all of that, and we cut carbs. Well, th there was only one macronutrient class less. If we cut fat, carbohydrate, and protein, we basically just need to clamp our lips together. So we went the other way with protein. And whereas we sort of vilified first fat and carbohydrate, we exalted protein. And the prevailing view in the United States now is that getting the highest quality protein you can is really important. Getting, eating the foods that deliver the highest concentration of protein is really important. That we have to worry about not getting enough protein, that more is always better. And all of that is wrong. We do not benefit from eating more protein than we need, and most Americans get more than they need. We don't have to eat the foods that have the highest concentration of protein or a particular amino acid to get more than enough of that. And there is a fundamental distortion when we think about the quality of protein, because historically, the, the, the work that generated the equations, and, and we can dive into this, Chuck, if you like, but when, when we talked historically about the quality of protein, it was in the context of making sure people didn't suffer nutrient deficiencies. Much of what populates the DRIs, the dietary reference intakes, and for those who don't know, this is a work of the National Academy of Medicine, formerly the IOM, and the RDAs, which we've all heard of, are situated within the DRIs. There's a whole alphabet soup there. There's RDAs, there's the ARs, there's a bunch of other things. But basically, dietary reference index. How much of what does everybody need? But how much of what does everybody need for what? The, the, the goal was never to identify what produces optimal health outcomes for people who live to be 100 years old. It was really all predicated on what we knew about nutrient requirements to avoid deficiency. So when you think about that and you think about uh, defining protein quality, you would look at the distribution of essential amino acids. You'd want to make sure everybody could get enough. 
And the foods that deliver the highest concentration of all the essential amino acids would get the highest quality score. But there's a fundamental problem with that. And this is the new view of protein. The problem is you can have high quality protein in a food <laughs> that isn't offering you quality in any way you care about. Uh, what, what constitutes quality when you think about food? Well, one thing might be the pleasure in eating it, but I think when we, we think about sustenance, we want food to nourish us in a way that feeds our vitality and our prospects for longevity, right? So if food is adding years to life and or life to years, okay, that, that sounds like quality to me. And the other, and this, this really is the signature issue of our time, is what does consumption of this food at scale do to the planet? Planetary health is the signature issue of our time. We rise to the challenge of that, or we all go down together. But the definitions of protein quality that prevail and that influence how everybody views protein are all about biochemistry. They're not about personal health. They're not about public health. And they're sure not about planetary health. So the view of protein that we're offering that's new says it's time to modernize how we even think about protein quality because there's a massive distortion there. There's a great quote by Gertrude Stein that's resonated through my whole career. I heard it originally, Chuck, from my residency director at Yale when I was doing my preventive medicine residency. That was Jim Jekyll. Quote by Gertrude Stein is a difference to be a difference must make a difference. And I think there's a corollary to that. Quality is as quality does. When we talk about the quality of protein, if it's higher, it ought to do something good for me. If instead it's increasing my risk of chronic disease because I'm getting it from foods that are contributing to inflammation, atherogenesis, and, and a host of other ills, that doesn't sound like higher quality. That sounds like lower quality. Uh, if my consumption of food is harming my fellow creatures, that doesn't sound like higher quality. That sounds lower. And if it's doing damage to the planet, the environment, and the climate, that sounds like lower quality too. So that's our new view. It's time to modernize the very definition of protein quality. Yeah, I'll tell you what, you've teed up this entire conversation perfectly with that. Um, before we get into quality sources, you know, what are the ones that we should be looking for? Let me ask you this. I feel like we are so protein obsessed by and large as a society that we don't take the time to look at you know, are we really eating too much protein? You already said that by and large, the majority of us are. So I'm just curious, you know, how prevalent is protein deficiency versus some other nutrient deficiencies that we may want to spend a little bit more time looking at compared to protein, protein, protein? Yeah, absolutely. So again, first of all, there are liabilities to over-consuming protein. One of the important things for people to know is that just because it's protein, doesn't mean it stays protein. The body is capable of remarkable alchemy. Uh, humans never figured out how to do alchemy, but biology did. I mean, you think about it, I, I have a horse, uh, and you know that magnificent creature turns oats and hay and grass into horse. I mean, that's, that's alchemy right there. It's magic. It's amazing. Uh, we're capable of the same thing. So when we need to store surplus calories, we can put a little bit of them into a carbohydrate storage that's called glycogen there's a glycogen storage depot in our skeletal muscle small and then there's a glycogen storage depot in our liver a little bigger but 
both are pretty small. And when we fill that tank, the only other place surplus calories can go into storage is as fat. And it doesn't matter how they come in. They can come in as carbohydrate, they get stored as fat. They can come in as fat, they get stored as fat. They can come in as protein, they get stored as fat. And I don't think people necessarily realize this, that if you load up on protein, and because of that protein loading, you're getting more calories than you need, those extra protein calories do not give you Popeye muscles. They are converted by the body's alchemy, biochemistry into fat and put into storage, the, the same as surplus calories from any other source. That is the common state here in the U.S. People overconsume calories, overconsume protein. It contributes to obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, coronary disease, all the rest. There's also a pretty strong case that excess protein from animal sources in particular contributes to inflammation, the risk of all major chronic diseases, including cancer. And of course, famously, this issue of animal protein was addressed by T. Colin Campbell in the China study. But there are a lot of intervention trials and observational trials since corroborating that view that the specific kinds of amino acids highly concentrated in animal foods when overconsumed contribute to the risk of chronic disease. So the, the, the issues of excess are serious and prevalent. But you asked about deficiency, and, and the simple answer is that in this part of the world, Chuck, it's all but unheard of. I, I, I suspect we've all seen pictures somewhere, National Geographic, uh, historical books, of what famine looks like. And there's a characteristic view of that, especially in children, where they have extremely thin limbs, and that's from muscle wasting or sarcopenia, but protuberant bellies. And that's ascites. That's a collection of fluid in the belly because of a low protein content in the blood. So that's protein deficiency. And that's called kwashiorkor. Uh, it's typically seen in young children in famine-prone parts of the world, Horn of Africa, for example, uh, sometimes Bangladesh. Sadly, there are places around the world prone to famine. They are prone to protein deficiency. It's a real issue there, which is one of, one of the, the important lessons to note is that when we talk about dietary guidance, nutrition standards, what people ought to eat, to add years to lives, life to years. It depends what they're eating now. People who don't have enough, more will help them. People who mostly have too much, less will help them. So everything depends on context. So there are places in the world where protein deficiency, amino acid deficiency is a real issue. This is not one of them. The US isn't one of them. Canada is not one of them. North America is not. Uh, the European Union, for the most part, is not. Where we see protein deficiency, is in severely ill and debilitated patients in the ICU or on burn units, people who suffered some sort of calamitous medical condition that leaches protein from the body, severe burns over uh, a large extent of the body surface area can be associated with protein deficiency. So it is seen, but not in the routine course of, of daily lives and free living people, much more prone to protein deficiency. Now, you mentioned, Chuck, that this is a panel. Uh, I, I was really honored that, that Neil Barnard asked me to help pull this together because I, I'm in the company of giants. Uh, uh, Mingyang Sang from uh, Harvard, Brenda Davis, and Christopher Gardner uh, will all be coming up to the podium to give talks about this new view of protein. And, and collectively, we hope we'll fully populate that view. Uh, so uh, among them, uh, Christopher Gardner at Stanford, whose name is likely well known to this audience, has done work to reveal that 
there's a there's a major fallacy about how we source essential amino acids and that that essential means we have to get these amino acids from food because we can't manufacture them. That's that's the difference between essential and non-essential amino acids. Non-essential amino acids our bodies can make. So give us enough protein of any sort, we can make these particular amino acids. The essential ones we can't make, we have to source them from food. But the the historical misperception was that you needed to eat animal foods to get all of the essential amino acids, and it's it's wrong. And Christopher, Professor Gardner, will speak to this issue and share the research that specifically looks at the amino acid profile of a wide variety of foods, plant and animal, and all of the essential amino acids are present in all plant foods. So, you know, it's it's interesting. Eating animal foods is basically like eating a bioconcentrator. Uh, you know, if you thought of of animals, and I, I don't, I don't particularly like this, but if you thought of them serving a function for us, the idea of eating animals, what what function do they serve for us? They're sourcing these amino acids from plants, concentrating them, and then we source them from the animals when we eat the animals. If we were prone to protein deficiency, there could be some advantage in that. But because we're not, because it's almost unheard of in the U.S. population and and really much of the industrialized world, we only derive disadvantage from sourcing bioconcentrated amino acids as opposed to getting them where the animals get them. And again, I mentioned my horse, Troubadour, magnificent 1,200 pounds of muscle, sourcing all of the amino acids he needs to make that muscle from plants exclusively from plants. So, you know, we know it can be done and we have the metabolism to do that as well. So that shift in perspective is also really important. No, you don't need to get high quality protein exclusively from animal foods. Where do you think those animals got all the amino acids they needed? They got them from plants. We could do the same. All essential amino acids are present in all plants, they do vary in their concentration, but if you eat a variety of plants, which you have to do to have a high quality diet overall, you're getting all the amino acids you need. Work again by Professor Gardner and others has demonstrated that even at fairly high activity levels, an exclusively plant-based diet readily provides all the amino acids you need. And then I, I was privileged, Chuck, to uh, have a small role in the documentary, The Game Changers. Uh, I suspect some in this audience may have seen that. Uh, James Cameron and, and others produced this film. Arnold Schwarzenegger was featured in it. So The Game Changers, for those who didn't see it, the game that was being changed was the notion that you've got to eat animal food if you want to be big and strong, if you want, you want to be a supreme athlete. And the film really was quite stunning because it, it featured some of the world's most extraordinary athletes and not just in one particular domain, but people with the world's greatest stamina, people with the world's greatest strength, some of the world's greatest bodybuilders, and all running entirely on plant-based food, plant-exclusive diets. A vivid illustration that you can, you not only can get all the protein you need from plants, but you can get all the protein you need when you need a lot more protein than the average person because you're doing absolutely intense physical activity and cultivating supreme athletic ability. And I, I really do hope there's a, a, a lingering effect of that documentary. 
like all documentaries, there's a bit of overreach. I mean, they sort of implied, didn't quite say it, but they implied if you want to be a supreme athlete, you have to have a vegan diet. And of course, not all supreme athletes have a vegan diet. So that's, that's the overreach. But the important point, and this is indelibly true, is you can be a supreme athlete. And you can be supreme in terms of strength or speed or stamina or all of those. And you can run on a plant-exclusive diet and you will never run into protein deficiency as long as you have a sufficient variety of high-quality, wholesome foods to access in the first place. That's really the critical issue. Let's talk a little bit about those essential amino acids. Remind us how many there are. Nine. Nine essential amino acids. And one of my favorite guests on the show, he comes on every month, is Dr. Will Bolsowitz. And his last conversation on the show, he and I were talking about diet diversity. And his goal with every person whom he works with is just to get them to eat 30 different varieties of plant foods per week. If a person is eating that, all right, more than two dozen different types of plants. Do you think that that diversity is going to be enough to make sure that they are getting all of the uh, essential amino acids that they need? No, uh, but it could. And, and so it, <laughs> the best answer, Chuck, is it depends. So if that diversity does not require a diversity of categories, so for example, beans and lentils are plant foods and leafy greens are plant foods and tree fruits or plant foods. So you could eat 30 different leafy greens and your protein intake would still be pretty nominal because they're a pretty dilute source. They have all the essential amino acids, but the amount of leafy greens you would need to eat is probably a volume most people couldn't manage in the course of a day to get all the protein you are. It's a dilute source of protein. In contrast, Legumes are a concentrated source of protein. Uh, many nuts and seeds are a concentrated source of protein, and whole grains are a concentrated source of protein. So when you say you know 30 different varieties, if we further stipulate that, that that diversity in your diet has to span all the different categories of plant foods, so we're talking vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, and you have to source from all of those then absolutely yes. Uh, then you're getting complementary nutrients. And by the way, the benefit of that variety in your diet extends well beyond protein and amino acids. You're also getting a variety of antioxidants. You're getting a wide variety of phytochemicals, probably some of which we don't even have names for. There are thousands of compounds in plants, and many of them have important nutritional properties, and many of those we've named and we've worked out the pathways but almost certainly there are many that don't even have names. Not all these chemical compounds have been studied. The biological effects of them haven't all been studied. We know eating the plants is good for us. We know eating a variety of plants is good for us, but there are probably ways in which they, these, these are good for us that haven't been worked out yet. So the greater the variety, the better. The other thing I, I like to think about, Chuck, when, when we're populating gaps in science, because obviously we don't have randomized controlled trials to identify the isolated effect of every one of thousands upon thousands of phytochemicals in food. So, you know, what is the isolated advantage of eating this particular leafy green providing this particular nutrient? We don't know. But what we do know is that we're adapted to eat a wide variety of whole plant foods. It's, it's very clear that's just, that's part of our human heritage, always was. Um, and that probably means our metabolism accommodates that 
great variety of nutrients in particular ways. Again, many, many of those ways work out, some of them probably not. Uh, so that would be the requirement. I, I would simply add to the, the advice that, that your other guest is providing. I think it's good advice. Variety is a good thing. But by the way, variety of wholesome foods direct from nature is a good thing. Variety of highly processed foods, not so much. Uh, you know, you could argue that, that living in the modern world, A, we're all living in an all-you-can-eat buffet pretty much all the time. And B, the result is an awful lot of people are on the seafood diet, as in I see food and I eat it. Uh, and, you know, there's just food, so-called, everywhere, all the time. Um, food, so-called, because really a lot of it is junk where food ought to be. So there's a problem of constant variety because it stimulates the appetite center. It goes us into overeating. And you could even make the case that that variety is engineered into individual foods. So there's not just variety among foods. There's, there's variety in food. And one of the best examples of that would be to note that commercial breakfast cereals, which are high in sugar content and everyone thinks of them as sweet, are actually more concentrated in salt and sodium than just about anything in the salty snack aisle. You don't really taste the salt, partly because our palates are so corrupted by a junk food diet, but also partly because it's masked by the sugar. And then the same is true in Converse, where pasta sauces, salad dressings, which we think of as savory or salty, often have a higher concentration of added sugar than many items in the dessert aisle. Why is that done? Why is that variety, that, that clash of flavors engineered into individual foods, ultra-processed foods for the most part? Because they differentially stimulate the human appetite center in the ventromedial hypothalamus. So when you've got sugar and salt and savory and maybe umami, you're turning on multiple dials in the appetite center. And the bottom line is the more activity there, the more you eat before you feel like stopping. And the more you eat before you feel like stopping, the quicker you finish whatever it is you bought and the sooner you buy the next one. And you know that's not so good for you, but it's certainly good for whoever's selling it. Um, this story, by the way, is brilliantly and beautifully told by Michael Moss, whose name many of you may know, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist, author of Salt, Sugar, Fat, and Hook. Uh, Michael wrote a New York Times Magazine cover story some years back entitled the extraordinary science of addictive junk food. So if you just Google Moss addicted, you can pull up that piece in the New York Times, but it tells the story that the manipulation of flavors and textures in processed foods on purpose to put the human appetite center into overdrive, to, to stimulate the effects of addiction. Uh, and, you know, basically when the Lay's potato chip folks told us, bet you can't eat just one, it, it was a threat. <laughs> oh, they, I mean, look, I think back to my old days on my junk food diet. I've told this story ad nauseum here on the show, being 420 pounds. I could not go a single day without going to the Taco Bell drive-thru. I don't know what those magicians did in that deep, dark food laboratory where they think up all of these creations, man, but they were evil geniuses engineering Absolutely. those things just to get you hooked. And man, I'm yeah. telling you to that end, and, and I promise you we'll circle right back to protein. But to that end, man, I mean, it was literally, it did not matter if I had just eaten dinner. If I had still not yet gotten my Taco Bell fixed for the day, I was going to go to the drive-thru because I was hooked, man. And I mean, big time hooked. 
Well, well, first of all, Chuck, I, I didn't know that backstory. So uh, oh, it's yeah. amazing. Congratulations. It's incredible how, how you, you've turned your health around. So I, I'm, Thank you. I'm proud of you for doing that. And I know that could not have been easy. And, and yes, it's, it's addictive. It's on purpose. It's the willful manipulation of the food supply. But it is taking advantage of native pathways in the nervous system that, that makes sense. And I, I can give everybody an example of how vulnerable we are to this. So you just mentioned, you know, even after dinner, you'd still need your Taco Bell fix. Even after a, a big dinner, a big meal, when everybody feels too full to eat another, I think, think of a holiday, you know, Thanksgiving or something, you just stuff yourself. And, you know, it's sort of classic. So somebody puts their hand on their side, oh, wow, I'm so full, I couldn't eat another bite. And that's immediately followed by another line. What's for dessert? What the heck's going on there? And, you know, we used to joke, right? That, well, there's, the, there's a hollow leg just for dessert or an extra stomach set aside waiting just for dessert. You know, we do anatomy and medical, so we, we haven't found those apocryphal organs. The, the explanation is something that's been studied and written about extensively by Barbara Rolls at Penn State, among others, called sensory-specific satiety. It's the fact that we fill up in a sensory-specific manner. So if you're eating salty, savory, you get full and you've had enough of that. But if you switch over to sweet, classically, that's what dessert brings you. That's that's a whole different appetite meter. You start all over again and you've got room, not in your leg and not in your stomach, but in your appetite center, in, in your brain, you've got more room. So when you manipulate foods to combine all those flavors and everything, it, it's basically a constant state of overdrive for the appetite center and addictive properties into the bargain. And as Michael Moss writes about, it's it's willful. It's basically the manipulation of food to get people hooked as you were and as so many others are. So that would be the precautionary tale about variety. But what we were talking about before was a variety of wholesome foods direct from nature. They do not have this property. Uh, you know, People do not experience the addictive properties of, of broccoli or apples or, or bananas. Uh, when your food comes direct from nature, there's none of this manipulation. And there, Variety absolutely is a good thing. And so, again, I, I, I would routinely translate Michael Pollan's pithy advice, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, into we're talking about not just a variety of plant foods, but a variety of categories of plant foods spanning vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds. If you mostly eat across that expanse and a variety within each of those domains, can't go too far wrong. Yeah, so maybe some simple practical advice here, right? Uh, if you're going the real easy route and you just want to open up a can of beans, maybe opt for the can that's got three different kinds of beans in it, right? So you're getting a wider variety of nutrients. If you've got kale, one day go for spinach the next. Go for a spring mix the day after that. Make sure that you get a few different kinds of fruit in there. And as you said, you know, to that point that we were talking about, well, maybe 30 different types of plant foods every single week when you layer on, as you said, those different kinds of plant foods and you kind of group them out by category, you should be in pretty good shape here, right? Totally agree. And I think we can layer onto that, Chuck, the idea of locally sourcing your food, which has a number of advantages, potentially environmental, reducing the carbon emissions associated with transportation, also fresher, maybe more delicious. So depending on what part of the country you're in, you may have access to locally sourced produce year-round, but many of us don't. But what that means is we have seasons. There's the stuff that's produced locally in the spring, the summer, the fall, and then by and large, our growing season ends. I'm in the Northeast, and then we are getting our food from a global supply. But 
that means shifting to the kinds of fruits and vegetables that grow locally and are readily available at farmers markets or in our own gardens in the summer. And that inevitably means a seasonal shift. So you can do this on a daily basis. You can have a weekly schedule. But I, I think actually doing this where there's a certain seasonal rhythmicity to it is kind of nice. And it, it, it puts you closer to the earth, if you will, um, you know, thinking more about where the food ultimately is coming from. And you don't have to choose. You can do all of these so that you can have sequences, as you mentioned, you know, if you're, you're getting your, your produce at the supermarket, everything's available all the time. So yes, that, that's sort of a cycle of different leafy greens, making your salad with, with different ingredients. But then I would overlay a, a seasonal variation there too, and think about the advantages of, of local sourcing. Among them, the fact that you're supporting the, the farmers who are, who are growing produce nearest to you. Uh, one other thing that I, I want to touch on with you before I'd let you go and, and you get ready for the conference here is the environmental impact that comes with these alternative proteins. Now, obviously, there's a lot of upside to that. And anybody who has spent any time in a grocery store has seen over the last couple of years just this explosion in plant-based options. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about the quality of protein that are in a lot of these frozen prepackaged plant-based meals whether it's the Beyond Burgers, the Impossible Burgers, the Gardein brand, how does that compare to more naturally sourced protein? Mm, good question. So I, I'm, I'm going to start with the punchline, Chuck, and this topic of plant-based meats or meat alternatives. And of course, uh, this whole domain is now expanding because we have cell culture producing the actual meat, but without the animals involved. So we'll, we'll have to append a discussion of that. But I've written about this many times, uh, Huffington Post and Medium and LinkedIn and so forth. And um, <laughs> I've sort of adopted the view that on the topic of plant-based meats, th these various formulations, the final word is courtesy, ironically, of a guy named Meatloaf. And that is two out of three ain't bad. So there are three considerations <laughs> uh, as we view meat alternatives. First, is it directly better? for human health? We'd like to be able to answer that question. Second, is it directly kinder, gentler, better for our fellow creatures? And third, is it directly better for the overall earth environment? So less carbon emission, less water utilization, less land use, uh, less contribution to climate change, and so forth. So on the first one, it really depends on the specifics of the formulation, and it depends what you are replacing. You know, so you, you could argue, for example, that if you were eating I don't know, venison or, or bison or some sort of game, uh, the nutritional composition of which is really quite good. And you were replacing that with a very processed meat substitute. Well, it would be better for the deer and better for the bison, clearly, but would it be better for your health, better for your coronary arteries, better for your microbiome? We don't have a definitive answer there. It might, in fact, be a lateral move because you're trading off the disadvantages of eating meat with the disadvantages of all the processing and, and things that go into creating a palatable texture and so forth. Um, and, and that varies by product um, because there are various ways to, to produce these meat alternatives. On the issue of is it better for the deer and the bison, unequivocally, yes. So plant-based meats are better for the animals that are not being raised for slaughter or, or hunted. 
And then is it better for the planet? Unequivocally, yes. And there I, I take my guidance from, in particular, Guidon Shell at Harvard, one of the world's leading experts on the environmental footprints of, of foods, unquestionably an environmental advantage. Then depending on the formulation, uh, there may be direct human health advantages and also depending on what you're replacing. Most people would not be replacing venison or bison with plant-based meats. They'd be replacing McDonald's hamburgers. So now you have not only beef, but you know relatively low-quality beef and a highly processed delivery vehicle for that beef, namely everything that comes along with the burger to make it a Big Mac. Well, if you have highly processed plus beef versus relatively processed but without the beef, then it's almost certainly, as best we can tell, better for human health. And now we've got three out of three. So now you're firing on all cylinders. In terms of the protein composition specifically, and, and is it high quality? The answer is pretty much yes across the board. Uh, it, it's almost necessary to achieve the desired texture if it's going to mimic the properties, the, the, the mouthfeel, if you will, of meat. Um, a similar protein composition to meat is required. Uh, relatively high protein content is, is characteristic. And again, there are a variety of these products. There's one called corn, for example, which you didn't mention, Q-U-O-R-N. Uh, and it's, it's derived from fungal material. Uh, and we didn't talk much about fungi as a particular category in, in uh, plant food, but it's an important category. And a number of fungi are extremely high in all of the essential amino acids and an excellent alternative to meat. And now we have the new entry which really is meat. It's just, and, and it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how people's ethics and, and dietary priorities, especially in the vegan community, are going to react to this. A, a big part of the motivation for being vegan for, for many people is the ethical implications. Well, what if those go away? You know, there's no animal involved. Um, it, it basically, you know, cell culture can produce chicken uh, or, or beef but there is no steer and there is no hen. Um, I, you know, I don't know whether that will be something that, that alters dietary behaviors uh, among current vegans or not. Uh, I'm somebody who simply likes eating whole plants. I really do. Uh, I, you know, last thing I would want is for my vegan burger to bleed or to convince me that it's meat because I prefer that it not be. I like the taste. I like the tech. I really like eating plants. So I have limited interest in all these products, but I do see great value in them. So, so to be clear, Chuck, I, I am a fan. First of all, two out of three ain't bad. If they're just better for our fellow creatures and just better for the planet, that's pretty damn good. But the other thing is the role that they play. Most people do eat meat. Far too many people in the modern world eat far too much meat. It, it, it has calamitous effects on our fellow creatures, biodiversity, planet, the climate. And if they're not going to change because they're used to eating meat and they really like eating meat and we can't get them to swap out beans for beef, maybe these innovations can get them to change that. That was the hope at the beginning of the plant-based meat era. And obviously all those companies had high valuations because of that hope. And then they've gone through a real rough patch as people have scrutinized the products and asked hard questions, is this better for health? And to some extent, uh, the blush came off the rose there. 
but maybe it will be restored now that there are new entries in that space, new ways of producing plant-based meat, new use of uh, mycelia and, and fungal material to produce not just the flavor of meat, but even the texture of it. And then finally, the cell culture-based methods. And all of these have a role to play in offering the world's current carnivores or meat-inclined omnivores a way to have their meat and not eat it too. Uh, and a, a tremendous advantage because you know that is a catalyst in shifting people away from the high ethical costs and the high environmental costs of current levels of meat consumption. That's all for the good. So I, I am a supporter of this whole category. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think it it would be, I'm kind of like you. I mean, I really enjoy eating the the whole plant foods and I love the creativity that comes with it um, and, and the dishes that are made up. I think it would be weird to eat uh, anything that was lab grown, but but is still technically meat, I guess. Like, I'm yeah, not sure that yeah. I would enjoy it. I think that I've lost my taste for it. And I think right. that there's also a part of me, in all honesty, that still would wrestle, like, with the ethics of it. Like, yeah. you know, it, it came from a cell of a living creature. That's where the that's where it originated. But at the same time, it's not... It, it's, not it's not the yeah, same. You're not harming... The, it, it, right. And, and, of course, once you have the cell, you simply replicate the cell in the lab. So... Yeah, I mean, essentially, you you can, without injury and without harm, harvest the original cells from an animal, and then grow this meat in a lab forever from mm -hmm. multiple generations of those cells, and no animals are harmed. But but yeah, I'm with you. I you, you still, it's still meat, and if you're just used to the idea that I don't eat that, you know, maybe there's no reason to revisit it. Again, I I like eating plants. I, I think about burgers, as I said. Um, and, and I, you know, I've got a, a gift for everybody. My, my wife's a, a brilliant cook, uh, also happens to be a brilliant scientist, PhD in neuroscience from Princeton. Uh, and uh, we had five kids and, and she turned her scientific acumen to feeding us optimally, uh, among other things. And she's a French foodie. So everything had to be delicious, Man, you but I was pretty fussed with doc. No, I hit the ja <laughs> totally hit the jackpot. Yeah, no, I absolutely. I mean, when, when we talk about better half, yeah, no, I, I really, uh, I did very, very well there. So Catherine, uh, eventually, uh, after developing all kinds of fantastic recipes over the years, created a recipe website to make it all freely available to everybody. It's called Quizinicity. So it's like Cuisine City, but with an I in the middle, Quizinicity.com. And if you go there and you just uh, put in the, uh, the, the search box, vegan burgers, they're the best I've ever tasted. Uh, and, and when you can have those, I don't know why you need, you know, a, a, any sort of processed meat alternative. Uh, you can taste these. I mean, if you like eating plants in general, you'll love them. I think if you like eating meat, you'd love them. Uh, but, uh, you know, these are made from beans and lentils and whole grains. I mean, they're, they're, they're really, really great. So quizinicity.com, vegan burgers. She's, she's come up with several different varieties. Um, but there it is. That's the website. Yeah, you see it right there um, Look, with live cooking and, demonstrations and everything. Man, your wife is a uh, total rock star. She's a rock star. She just did one of those yesterday. Yeah. She was showing people how they could take dishes that traditionally are made with chicken and convert them over to tofu. And and she was slow coming. She's, she's French. She grew up in Southern France. 
tofu, you know, was was not a uh, a prominent <laughs> feature of her diet. So she was a slow convert to tofu, but she does amazing things with it. And anyway, yeah, everybody help yourselves to quizinisty.com. That's uh, Catherine's gift to the world. Cat's Family Greatest Hits, all all posted there. And look at that, man. These are some like really good, good recipes here, right? And it looks like she's walking people through the basics up to some more advanced stuff. So what we're going to do here is drop a link to... Uh, the website in the show description and in the episode notes for everybody to peruse and partake in those extraordinary recipes. That is a good tip, man. We have definitely learned something here today. Outstanding good. offering. Outstanding. Good, good, good. Well, and practical, right? I mean, I and actually, Catherine and I have joked over that. I mean, she she says I'm nutritious. She's delicious. Hard to argue <laughs> with that. But but I think the more informative description is that I'm theory. She's practice, right? So you know, along with many of my esteemed colleagues. Uh, who will be at the conference and my esteemed colleagues at PCRM, I'm a nutrition expert. Uh, But she does the cooking. So, you know, really that's the the translation of all the things we talk about in theory into nourishing a whole family, beautiful things. So so I'm theory, she's practice. And so, you know, happy to share the, the practical aspect of all this with recipes you can make at home. And they are simple. You know, she was she was doing all this cooking over the years when we had a bunch of kids in the house. So constant distractions, dogs running around, you know, it wasn't as if this was a, a, you know, a professional kitchen where she had total control. It was usually madness and she was able to get it done anyway. So they're, they're generally very family friendly, easy to make, nutritious and delicious. So hope you enjoy. Yeah, man. And I'll tell you, that's the ultimate litmus test as well as whether or not the kids will eat it. And if you're getting, you know, two thumbs up from the kiddos, then I think you you are really onto something. So um, I'm definitely going to check that out and see what I can't whip up this weekend. I think that that's going to be great. And of course, very much looking forward to Dr. Katz catching up with you uh, at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine coming up August 10th through 12th in Washington, D.C. Tickets still available at pcrm.org ICNM. And of course, your panel, The New View of Protein, kicking everything off bright and early on Thursday morning. Uh, Dr. Katz, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute treat. Pleasure for me, Chuck. Thanks for having me. And I'm really looking forward to the conference. Cool family there. Had no idea. Had no idea. And the link to Quizinicity, as we said, is in the episode notes. Not all of the recipes on there are vegan, but a good number of them are. And that includes the recipe for pasta frijol with spinach and mushroom marinara, which taking a glance at it looks super easy, super fast, and most importantly, super delicious. So all of those superlatives, and it looks like she came up with this for those of us who like to really speed up that process in the kitchen because we're just that busy. So it's a sped up process and it's just kind of like a dress up the jar kind of recipe, so to speak. You buy some pasta sauce from the jar, you open it, and then you spruce that up with your own blend of herbs and spices. And so she lays out her version of that, which just looks incredible. And it calls for a little bit of olive oil. And so if you really want to take your health to that next level, you're watching that, maybe you eat SOS free. Well, you can leave that out just by doing a dry saute. It's a pretty easy modification and guarantee you that all the flavor still remains. So some really fun recipes on Quizinicity. If you want to poke around and check those out, that link is in the episode notes. Lots of fun on that website too. 
That's a fun name. Quizonicity. That's awesome. <laughs> Let's switch gears while we still have a couple of minutes here. We are in the home stretch, but I want to talk about sleep for a second. Are you getting enough? Well, if you're like the millions who struggle for a quality shut-eye, turns out that could be taking a toll on your gut health. A study in the European Journal of Nutrition finds that having an irregular sleep pattern is kind of like rolling out the red carpet for harmful gut bacteria. And researchers here say that this study of more than 900 people is the first to find in a single cohort multiple associations between what they call social jet lag, which is the shift in your internal body clock, your sleeping patterns that change between sleeping during the week and on the weekend or on a holiday when you can sleep a little bit later or even go to bed a little bit later. So those shifts and diet quality, diet habits, inflammation, and what all of that does to the makeup of your gut microbiome. Now, this next part is from the press release that was sent to me about the study. It says, in a cohort of 934 people from the Zoe Predict study, the largest ongoing nutritional study of its kind, researchers assessed blood, stool, and gut microbiome samples, as well as glucose measurements in those whose sleep was irregular compared to those who had a routine sleep schedule. While previous studies into the association between social jet lag and metabolic risk factors have been done in populations with obesity or diabetes, this cohort consisted of mainly lean and healthy individuals, with most getting more than seven hours of sleep per night throughout the week. And the findings are pretty substantial. Even if we're talking about just an hour and a half difference in sleep timing, your weekend sleep habits versus your weekday sleep habits. So this is from the release again. Researchers found that just a 90-minute difference in the timing of midpoint sleep, which is the halfway point between sleep time and wake-up time, is associated with the differences in gut microbiome composition. Says having social jet lag was associated with lower overall diet quality, higher intakes of sugar-sweetened beverages, and lower intakes of fruits and nuts, which may directly influence the abundance of specific microbiota in your gut. It goes on to say three out of the six microbiota species are more abundant in the social jet lag group and have unfavorable associations with health. These microbes are associated with poor diet quality, indicators of obesity and cardiometabolic health, as well as markers in your blood related to higher levels of inflammation and cardiovascular risk. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what it is that they're saying here. And just on the most fundamental surface level of observations here, you're talking about irregular sleep patterns being associated with a poor diet. Well, think about this. How often when you're tired and it's late at night, do those midnight snack attacks hit, right? Of course, you're not reaching for an apple. Of course, you're not reaching for a piece of fruit or something healthy like that. Of course, of course, instead you're reaching for chips or ice cream or cake or any number of unhealthy options that you could possibly have in your pantry or in your kitchen. It's just all that easy. And when you're tired, your willpower is a joke a lot of times. It's a lot harder to say no to temptation when you're already fatigued, isn't it? 
We've all been there. So that just kind of goes to underscore the importance of sleep. But it's interesting how all of that, though, works together with your gut microbiome. And so perhaps we'll have the opportunity to talk more about this study with Dr. Will Bolsowitz the next time he is on the show. And I have dropped a link to this study in the episode notes if you would like to check it out. And if you feel like you've learned something today, raised your health IQ by a point or two, go ahead, give the show a follow on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on Spotify or wherever it is that you get your shows. Look for the exam room by the Physicians Committee. And when you do that, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice review. In the review, if you want to tell us a little bit about how a plant-based diet has improved your health or how this show has helped you on your journey, we would love to hear that. Maybe we'll get the opportunity to talk about that right here on the show as well. And don't forget to register for the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine coming up August 10th through 12th in Washington, D.C. Join Dr. David Katz, Dr. Michael Greger, Dr. Neil Barnard, myself, so many others for an incredible three days packed with the latest in nutrition research guaranteed to take your health IQs to levels never thought possible before. And oh, by the way, the food... Huh. I'm just going to leave it like that. I can't even describe it. It's so good. So pcrm.org slash ICNM to save your seat today. Coming up really fast, August 10th through 12th. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. David Katz for being here, raising our health IQs with his new view on protein. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. 